Today's episode is sponsored by H&E Publishing, a Reformed Evangelical and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. To see their full list of titles, visit www.hesedandemet.com, or you can just Google H&E Publishing. We're really excited to be partnering with them uh, as they're giving away several uh, high-quality books that we know you're going to want to check out for yourself and get a copy of. Uh, But on this episode in particular, uh, we talk to our friend Jake Stone about Andrew Fuller. We did an episode in the past with Nathan Finn on Andrew Fuller. I don't know how many weeks ago it was now. And Jake took a couple issues with a few things he said. So we wanted to bring him on to discuss those questions, to discuss those disagreements, to see where he stood on uh, the legacy and life of Andrew Fuller. So tune in, listen to the full thing, give us your thoughts, where you land on the controversies that are there, because we are seeking truth to think deeply and clearly about these issues. And I think uh, having on disagreeing voices, dissenting opinions helps us to think clearly about our faith and our life. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where we try to encourage deep and clear thinking, uh, particularly from a Baptist perspective, uh, at least most of the time. Sometimes we have people on from different perspectives denominationally, and we learn from them as well. But I think the reason that we do the Baptist perspective is because, well, me and Brandon are Baptists, and um, we want to encourage deep and clear thinking, especially among Baptists who have... I guess the not so nice connotation of not thinking uh, most of the time. So we hope to help that. Uh, and on today's episode, we welcome back a good friend of ours, Jake Stone. Um, I'll give you a little bit of the context for this episode in a second, but I want to mention a cool thing that, um, as you heard in the introduction, uh, we're being sponsored uh, on this po- on this episode by H and E Publishing. Um, and I'm really excited about this because they're giving away a couple great books, uh, particularly on Andrew Fuller for this episode and some upcoming episodes. So good guys over there um, publishing some great stuff. So we definitely recommend you, um, A, try to get some free books. I mean, that's cool. I always like free stuff. Uh, and B, check out their stuff because I think they're publishing some useful um, reformed evangelical and uh, depending on where you live, um, maybe this is good or bad Canadian publishing house stuff. Um, and so definitely check them out. Anyway, uh, that aside, we're talking to our friend Jake Stone about Andrew Fuller uh, this episode. So we had an episode a few weeks ago uh, about Andrew Fuller with Nathan Finn. And it we got some text messages immediately from Jake with some questions about uh, the context uh, of and the, um, I guess Dr. Nathan Those are outbursts, take. not questions. Outbursts. <laughs> so, by the way, by we, the way, dude, you tell Jake that we just uh, interviewed a Roman Catholic. I don't know if he still wants to go through with this after he finds that out. <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll, we'll let <laughs> him decide. People, on that. people can't hear your facial expressions, but sorry, go ahead. Anyway, so what we wanted to do was talk to Jake a little bit about Andrew Fuller because I think I walked away from that episode. Um, I don't know a ton about Andrew Fuller, to be completely honest. I mean, I know historically like who he is, what he did. I haven't read a ton of Andrew Fuller's actual writings. So when Dr. Finn's talking to me about him, I'm taking him at his word saying, yeah, that must be how it is. And I honestly walked away thinking, 
I don't love Andrew Fuller as much as I thought I would have loved him. Uh, to me, I walked away feeling like he was more of a biblicist uh, in in the in the meaning not that he loves the Bible, but that he uh, tries to remove pretty much anything outside of the scriptures itself to help you determine what it means. Um, and so I didn't really love it myself, um, Fuller, but I know, Jake, you you love Fuller. Uh, you have a passion to promote Fuller, so you have a different take on him. So that's what we want to talk about today. Um, before we jump into those questions, Jake, why don't you introduce yourself real quick to remind our listeners who you are. You've been on the show before, but for those who haven't been listening to every episode um, and might not know who you are, give us a little bit of, I guess, context for you. Well, it's great to be back with you too. I pastor New Testament Baptist Church in Biloxi, Mississippi. So that's right on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And I definitely have a passion for Baptist history. I believe Baptist history has a lot to teach us, especially in our cultural moment that we're in. And as you said, I have a love for Andrew Fuller and really the men associated with him. Uh, one way that that's evident is our church host a conference that's entitled the Carrie Fuller Conference. So we definitely believe as a church and myself personally that Andrew Fuller and the particular Baptists have a lot to teach us. Okay, so Carrie Fuller Conference, um, that's at the moment of this recording, that's in like another week or two, yes, right? Yes, that's March 6th and 7th. So that's two weeks from this Friday and Saturday. And so this will be our third year so, to do this fourth year to do it um and it's 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 free right yes. for people who want yes, to go it is free yes so i mean if if you're a local church pastor who's on a limited budget um this seems like a no-brainer especially if you're in the area um and if you're not in the area if you're north it seems like a no-brainer to get away from the cold that is correct and also um, we have each year at our lunch, we have seafood gumbo and fried chicken. So what more could you want than warm temperatures and real food? <laughs> so and then we do do some theology. I don't history, know. So that's in there too. All right. So we'll, we'll touch on that, the conference a little bit more in a little bit, but I want to dig in right now uh, on Andrew Fuller. So why don't you, can you walk me back through with what you took Nathan Finn to be saying about uh, Andrew Fuller uh, in full? And uh, before we kind of, I guess, pick apart the areas where you disagree with, maybe you can just say, this is an area I disagree with. He mentioned this, and he mentioned this, and he mentioned this. That's what I want to talk about. Sure, yes. And I, I want to say that I very much appreciate Dr. Finn and, and the work that he has done in regards to Baptist history and, and Andrew Fuller. Um, and there were many points that I agreed with him on that, that he shared. I do believe that Fuller is a very pivotal figure in Baptist history, um, in the recovery of the particular Baptist. I would say, though, that I really disagreed with the presentation that somehow Andrew Fuller, as he went along in his ministry and writings, uh, moved away from limited atonement or particular redemption, uh, that he rejected that, and, it, and you can see it in his second edition of the Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation, and that he affirms this uh, notion of a general atonement. Um, and, and embedded in that, um, Dr. Finn kind of follows a train of thought that 
is held by several uh, historians that Andrew Fuller is this moderate Calvinist who came in and rescued the particular Baptist from John Gill and this uh, and the phrase that um, men like William Lumpkin and Baptist Confessions likes to use this rigid Calvinism. So Fuller comes in here and kind of saves the denomination from that by watering down uh, their Calvinistic theology. It's interesting that in his own day, Andrew Fuller was accused of being a moderate Calvinist. And in the memoir of Mr. Fuller written by his close friend, John Ryland Jr., uh, Fuller has an exchange on one of his trips to Scotland in raising funds for the particular Baptist Missionary Society that sent William Carey. And this uh, Scotch Baptist asked Fuller, are there different shades of Calvinism in England? And Fuller says, yes, there are. And he mentions that there were sh three shades of Calvinism. There were the high Calvinist, which he said were more Calvinistic than John Calvin. There were the moderate Calvinist, which he was accused of being. And he said that that was the equivalent of being a Baxterian, a half Arminian and half Calvinist. And then he said there was the third group, which was the strict Calvinist. And Fuller said, quote, I do not believe everything that Calvin taught, nor anything because he taught it, but I reckon strict Calvinism to be my own system. So the man did not see himself as somehow in this uh, watered down, moderate, four-point Calvinism, um, he saw himself as still a champion of the historic Calvinistic faith that the particular Baptist had held to. So I can keep going. Um, one of the things that I think probably that would summarize the view that Dr. Finn holds is actually found in a book entitled Offering Christ to the World by Peter Morton, which is a very good book about Andrew Fuller and his pastoral ministry and his theology. But Morden says the same thing. Uh, he says that in very clear terms, repeatedly in the book, uh, when he's dealing with Fuller's theology, that Fuller moved away from a particular redemption or limited atonement view to a general atonement view. And Peter Morden is, those statements are quoted by men like uh, Dr. David Allen uh, and the work that he has done on the atonement and trying to present Andrew Fuller as a four-point Calvinist. Uh, but men like Tom Nettles, uh, Michael Haken, uh, Robert Oliver, all push back on that reasoning. Because what Fuller does, and he does mature in how he develops his views on the atonement to where for the last, I would say, close to 20 years of his life, he would say he believed that the atonement was sufficient for all mankind, but only efficient for the elect. Now, it is true that Fuller does incorporate more governmental theory language of the atonement uh, between 1795 and 1815. And that's because he was influenced a lot by Jonathan Edwards and then Edwards' successors, who are known as the New Divinity School. But uh, Nettles and others say, yes, he did use some of that language, but he did not go fully in the direction of the New Divinity School. They fell into a lot of errors. Basically, they would over time totally reject uh, the Calvinism from start to finish of Jonathan Edwards. Now, the question is, why did Fuller 
um, start to use that language. And that was his issues that he had with Abraham Booth. And I do agree. I think Fuller opened himself up to some charges by using that language. And I do think Booth had a right to be concerned. But from Fuller's standpoint, he thought that there were men in the Baptist circles, uh, and particularly drawing from John Gill, that when they talked about the atonement and penal substitutionary atonement, they emphasized so much the aspect of justice and wrath that they really neglected talking about love and mercy and grace in the atonement. And he picked up those themes from Jonathan Edwards and others from America using governmental language to try to, in his understanding, balance between justice and wrath and mercy and grace. So he still, though, believed in things like substitution and imputation. And a lot of times people will say his exchanges with Dan Taylor, who was a general Baptist, made Fuller more Arminian in the, his view of the atonement. But when he wrote the second edition of the gospel worthy of all acceptation and in subsequent interactions with Abraham Booth, he made it clear to him that he was already wrestling with these things before his interactions with Taylor. It wasn't that Taylor pushed him and drove him to this position of somehow coming to a general atonement, but that he had already been wrestling. And when he revised the gospel worthy of all acceptation, the preface, he said there were some things in the second edition that were that were not in the first, and there were some things in the first edition, not in the second, but that people should not read into that as somehow he had made huge changes in his theology, but that in the subsequent years, there were new issues that required him to emphasize more. So Robert Oliver, and I would agree with this, says that Abraham Booth and Andrew Fuller talked past each other a lot, and it was because they did not define terms the same. And I think in one of your earlier episodes that you had a guest on that talked a lot about Abraham Booth, I think Booth's background in Arminianism and Fuller's background in hyper-Calvinism is probably what shaped them a lot in how they were coming to these issues. I think they had more in agreement than disagreement, but because of their backgrounds, their biography, and our biography does influence how we do theology, um, regardless of who we are, I think that's why their emphases were a little bit different. And I think that's what caused some of the the division. So that's interesting. And, and you mentioned, I guess, there are different schools of thought when it comes to Fuller. You've got guys like David Allen um, and I guess Nathan Finn, who want to say Fuller affirms a general atonement. He's a four-point Calvinist. Um, he doesn't affirm particular redemption. And then you have Michael Haken and Tom Nettles who are arguing the opposite. And as I'm thinking about it, I don't, I don't know. I didn't sit down and like write down, calculate who thinks what, but it does seem interesting that just looking at it from here, that the people who are saying Fuller affirms particular redemption, affirm particular redemption themselves. And those who say Fuller affirms general atonement, a general atonement, affirm a general atonement. So when I'm saying that, I wonder how much their own personal desire to see Fuller in line with their own theological convictions might bias their opinion on that. 
I think that definitely can impact how, how you read Fuller. Um, I think your presupposition can somewhat skew how you do read him. And as I said, I do think, I agree that I think at times he could muddy the water a little bit himself. But if you, if you do, though, read statements he makes after the second edition of the Gospel Worthy and after some of the interactions with Abraham Booth, I, I pulled two quotes I want to read from, he wrote a series of six letters to his good friend, John Ryland. Letter five is entitled Calvinism. And in that letter, Fuller talks about being accused by Abraham Booth of being an Arminian. And Fuller's argument, which is really interesting, and he points out, by the way, Booth's coming out of Arminianism uh, in some of his argumentation. Fuller said, no, what I'm doing when I say that the atonement is sufficient for all, but efficient only for the elect, I'm going back to the historic, confessional, reformed understanding. And he said this in that letter, quote, the Calvinists who met at the Synod of Dort have expressed their judgment on redemption in nine propositions. Were they not too long for transcription, I would insert the whole. The following extracts, however, will sufficiently express their sentiments on the points in question. And then he gives three different quotations from uh, the Canons of Dort. The first one is, the death of the Son of God is the only and most complete sacrifice and satisfaction for sins of infinite value, abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. The promise of the gospel is that whosoever believeth in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have eternal life. Which promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought indiscriminately to be published and proposed to all nations and individuals to whom God in his good pleasure sends the gospel. The reason why many who are called by the gospel do not repent and believe in Christ but perish in unbelief is not through any defect or insufficiency in the sacrifice of Christ offered upon the cross but through their own fault. And then one more quote that he uses is the gracious will and intention of God the Father was that the life-giving and saving efficacy of the precious death of his son should exert itself in all the elect to endue them alone with justifying faith and thereby infallibly bring them to salvation. And then Fuller says, this is him now speaking, I would not wish for words more appropriate than the above to express my sentiments. And he's using that, as you can see, that language from Dort to also connect with why he believed in preaching the gospel to every creature for Carey and company to go to India. And if I can make one note real quick, Abraham Booth was one of the few London pastors. Most of the London pastors had no use for Fuller and Carey because they were very much high Calvinist. Abraham Booth was one of the few London pastors who actually was supportive of the Baptist Missionary Society. So Booth was seen as kind of as a very similar to Fuller before the revised edition of the, the gospel worthy of all acceptation. So in that letter, he makes it clear, I stand here with Dort. And then in letter six is entitled on Baxterianism, which he again had been accused by Booth of holding stuff like Richard Baxter. Fuller says this, and this is very plain to me. Mr. Baxter pleads for universal redemption 
I only contend for the sufficiency of the atonement in itself considered for the redemption and the salvation of the whole world. And this affords a ground for a universal invitation to sinners to believe, which was maintained by Calvin and all the old Calvinists. I consider redemption as inseparably connected with eternal life and therefore as applicable to none but the elect who are redeemed from among men. And many of Fuller's writings after the second edition and in the second edition, he talks about how the application of redemption is solely directed by sovereign wisdom. It's the result of previous design. It has a sovereign intent. Um, I just don't believe that sounds like somebody who holds to general atonement. That that is not a classic yeah. Arminian explanation. And one of the things he pushed back on Dan Taylor and others was is that their view did not meant that Jesus could fail in his work. That he believed that Jesus did purchase justifying faith uh, for his people. That the cross could not be a failure. So... How, I mean, how does David Allen or Nathan Finn respond to those texts? Because, well, they probably, as I said, that's where at times if you read Fuller, the way that he talks about, I would say, the sufficiency for all mankind is kind of what some, and I don't want to impugn those men, but some just say, well, ha, there is a view of, of a general atonement. And here's where... But what frustrates me at times is that, and this is not a podcast on Andrew Fuller and his views on John Gill. Um, I think sometimes that could be <laughs> uh, overstated that somehow he was just an anti-Gillite. Um, but my issue sometimes is the way people measure Calvinism among particular Baptists is to take John Gill, Andrew Fuller, compare them to each other and say, well, there you go. And it totally ignores Bunyan, Keech, and all of those men who preceded um, Gill in the mid-18th uh, century particular Baptist. And that's why Fuller did not like the term Fullerism, which was being used before he died. He said, you call it Calvinism, you call it Bunyanism, you call it Owenism. He did not feel that he had developed anything that was new. All he saw himself, he thought that the hyper-Calvinists in Baptist life were the ones who had created a new theology he was retrieving what was the historic uh, Baptist theology. And I'll and I just give one more quote, which I found interesting in the Peter Morden book. Morden, as I said, mentions over and over that he believes Fuller moved. But he then cites this quote from a Kenneth Dix, who wrote a book on the Baptist of the, the 19th century. And this is what Dix says. He said, quote, there were certainly times when Fuller made statements which might have been construed as a departure from the particularist position, but this was not the case. His belief in a, an atonement that was sufficient for man, but efficacious only for the elect, offended high Calvinists, but he never gave up the 17th century confessions. So that, that's why I think that it's, I don't believe it's, it is consistent to say that Fuller left particular redemption and moved over to a general atonement because of his dialogues with Dan Taylor. Yeah. So maybe you, maybe you don't know the answer to this, but um, so 
you mentioned that that Fuller leans really heavily on on Dort. Do you know if men like Allen and Finn or would they say that that Dort was promoting a view of, of general atonement since since it uses that language of sufficiency and sufficient for all? I I, I haven't read Allen's book. I, I, don't, know, I don't know, but 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 I I just. My contention is, is that when you're dealing with the canons of Dort, you are dealing with what is the response of the Calvinistic party among the Dutch to the Mm -hmm. remonstrance. And if you have Andrew Fuller saying, if I had enough space, I would put the whole section on the atonement in here and then pick out parts of it and say, this expresses what I believe. They're not arguing at Dort for a general universal atonement. They're arguing against that. And Fuller is putting himself right, squarely yeah. in that camp. I, I will say reading from Peter Morden, it, it almost sounded like to me, and I don't know him and I don't want to judge him, but almost any type of saying that the atonement is sufficient for all means general atonement. And that's just not, that's a misreading or misunderstanding or mischaracterization of a and that's spectrum, that's why I asked because yeah, it, it seems particular redemption. It, yeah, because it seems like if you're gonna if you're gonna use that as your reason for saying that Fuller affirms a general atonement, then you you're, you're gonna have to use that to say that Dort affirms a general atonement. But they are self consciously arguing against that very position. So I don't understand. I don't know there, but anyhow, I don't want to get hung up on just the atonement stuff. So because um, we 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 want to talk I, about I the. Encourage- the, to buy Tom Nettles by his grace and for his glory, and he has a whole chapter on Fuller and then has an appendix dealing with this issue too. And Dr. Nettles sides more with Abraham Booth's reasoning on the atonement than he does Andrew Fuller personally, but he argues that Fuller is not mm-hmm. deviating or, or moving away from Calvinism. It's just that there was a, a spectrum of views within reform thinking on the atonement and Booth and Fuller represent two different views, but they're in the same spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. So since you insisted on picking a fight with Dr. Finn, I guess we'll bring up something else that he said. Um, He made some kind of comment about, uh, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but basically that, that, that Fuller was a biblicist. Um, do you care to respond to that charge? Do you agree, disagree, or uh, how do you feel about that? I think it needs to be qualified. Um, again, uh, Peter Morton has a whole section in his book on Andrew Fuller's biblicism and uses that term a lot, but so does Michael Haken. Michael Haken talks about uh, Fuller's biblicism. So there's no- Yeah, I think Michael Haken seems to use the word in a good way, yes. right? So there, there's no question that Andrew Fuller was a biblicist um, in the sense that he was very, very, very emphatic about getting in the Bible and studying the scriptures. And wherever you're going to come out on a theological position, you better be able to go to the text and argue. I mean, when you look at his engagements with Dan Taylor, um, you know, Dan Taylor is citing text and Andrew Fuller is dealing with those texts and, and is working through it. So if you read anything about Fuller, whether it's his ordination sermons that he gave to men, it's his polemical writings, it's his own other uh, works, he's very much driven by a desire for the Bible to be opened, read, and explained. 
he was always very careful to make sure that he said, I believe something because I understand the Bible to teach it. Not because Calvin says it or Edwards says it. But I think that it would be a mistake to come away and think that Andrew Fuller was anti-confessional or anti-credal. As we just noted earlier, what does he cite as an explanation for where he stands on the atonement? He cites a confession. He says, go read the canons of Dort. Mm-hmm. He said, I can't put it any better about how or what I believe about this than what is in this confessional document. And then he also uh, wrote a short treatise on creeds and subscriptions that's in his works. And this is the in the first paragraph of that short treatise. He says, it has been very common among a certain class of writers to exclaim against creeds and systems in religion as inconsistent with Christian liberty and the rights of conscience. But surely there must be uh, no under, it must be understood as objecting to those creeds which they dislike and not to creeds in general. For no doubt, unless they would be worse than the worst of beings, they have a creed of their own. The man who has no creed has no belief which is the same thing as being an unbeliever. And he whose belief is not formed into a system has only a few loose, unconnected thoughts without entering into the harmony and glory of the gospel. Every well-informed and consistent believer, therefore, must have a creed, a system which he supposes to contain the leading principles of divine revelation. And then he goes through that about how creeds can be abused, what's their place, but also about how a society, and he's talking about a church, has to have the right. If they're going to make a judgment on moral issues, they must also have the right to make judgments on theological or doctrinal issues. When Andrew Fuller was installed as the pastor in Kettering in 1783, he wrote a confession of faith, which you can Google and and find and read. That was the common practice of those Baptist ministers to write out a confession of faith. And what it's interesting to me in doing a little digging is in 1777, the association that Fuller was a part of, the North Northamptonshire Baptist Association, had a circular letter, which was what those associations did at that time. They, a man would be selected to write a letter dealing with different theological and doctrinal subjects. Just as an aside, I wish we went back to those kinds of practices and current Baptist life and some of the trivial stuff that gets entered around, but that'll save the discussion. <laughs> but Ryland, John Ryland Sr. wrote a letter on what is a gospel church, which is actually very good. But he talked about the form of a church. And he makes an interesting statement. He says, our confession of faith, which is a reference to the Second London, and our catechism, which would be a reference to Keech's, for the instruction of our young people are published to the world. And from these glorious principles, we hope you will never depart. If you should, you will be no longer churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. At present, blessed be God, we believe there is no apparent apostasy in our ministers and people from the glorious principles we profess. But then he says this, which is interesting, but at the same time, We must in great plainness and faithfulness tell you that catechizing of children is most sadly neglected, both in private families and in public congregations. And with respect to our printed confession of faith, we judge 
that not one in a hundred of all our church members have ever seen so much as ever so much as seen it. We take our part of the blame and shame that we have not been zealous and faithful to recommend it and put it into your hands. May we and you be wiser for the future. So he's making a statement that they needed these things, but for whatever reason, I would argue probably complacency, um, had set in that it was not being used or utilized. But in about mm -hmm. 10 years or so, John Rippon, who was John Gill's successor, began publishing what was called the Baptist Registry, which had all the different Baptist churches, associations, and pastors and other information. In the first editions Rippon published, he republished the 1689 Confession. And Fuller's close friend, Samuel Pierce, would write a circular letter in, the, in 1795, and it's reprinted in 1803. And he utilizes the 1689 to talk about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And Pierce makes this statement about their views on salvation being entirely by grace. He says, we are still, quote, treading in the steps of our venerable forefathers, the compilers of the Baptist Confession of Faith, who thus expresses themselves respecting the doctrine of justification. And then he cites a paragraph from the confession. And later in that circular letter, he notes a part of the confession and he footnotes it and says, this is from Rippon's republication. So I will agree to a point that I don't know if Andrew Fuller, when he was studying or anything, went and grabbed a copy of the 1689 and was checking himself all the time when he was reading. But I certainly know that he and the Baptists of his day were not anti-credal, anti-confessional, mere biblicist. Fuller went to the Bible first, yes, but then he would go and read Bunyan and Charnock and Goodwin and Owen and others to make sure that he wasn't going off in a bad direction. So it wasn't just that he said, I have the spirit in my Bible and that's kind of it. That's maybe where he started. But I, I do not believe that you could say that somehow he would hold to what people would say is, you know, no creed but Christ, no confession but the Bible. I do not believe that was Andrew Fuller's mentality or practice. So before we wrap up and let you go, we'll, we'll ask you the same question that we finished up with Dr. Finn on, and that is uh, if we could bring Andrew Fuller to 2020 to talk to modern day Baptists, let's say specifically Southern Baptists, what do you think he'd say? And uh, how do you think he would feel about the way things are going right now? I think he would say you need to all be five point Calvinist. I do believe he'd come back and say that. <laughs> um, I think that he would, I, I would agree with Dr. Finn. I think he would be very encouraged by the efforts that are made in the endeavors of missions. Um, I don't know how much you would be a fan of all of the complexities of organization and hierarchy. Um, that's also for another discussion for another time. But I think that he would definitely be grateful for the zeal that exists. I would say that he would be very disturbed by the pragmatism that reigns in so many places. Um, and I agree also with Dr. Finn about he would be very concerned about what is in pulpits. 
the lack of doctrine and theology being taught and expounded. I, I agree totally. I think he would be abhorred by the lack of robust ecclesiology among a people who would call themselves Baptist. And I don't want to be too harsh or, or too critical, but I think he would probably recommend a lot of people remove that name from I, there as being a label for them. Uh, Fuller was very, very intentional about a regenerate church membership, church discipline. One of the circular letters he wrote for the association was on the use of discipline. He wrote another one on the practical uses of baptism. Um, he was very, very emphatic on close, close communion. When a lot of Baptists were beginning to move more and more to an open view, uh, he was very, I would say, dogmatic about it, it. No, it's only to be observed by those who have been baptized by immersion in the name of the Trinity. Um, so I think he would be very concerned with the lack of emphasis on Baptist distinctives. Um, but I will also say this, too. I, I think he would be concerned with the way that Southern Baptists talk to each other and the division that comes mm. so easily. Um, when he took trips to Scotland, he had actually more fellowship with the non-Baptist evangelicals in Scotland than a lot of the Scotch Baptists. And he made a comment one time, and I'm paraphrasing, that the Scotch Baptists were always arguing over the most minor point so that they then could divide over it. And that really troubled him. And he wrote extensively about falling into a sectarian spirit. He said, we are Baptists. I'm a dissenter. So we are a part of a sect. But that doesn't mean we give ourselves to a sectarian spirit. He said famously, we're not out to make men Baptist. We're out to make men Christians. Now, he was still very dogmatic about, and rightfully so, about believers' baptism. He wasn't conceding that ground. But he was also very much, I would say, an evangelical ecumenical. And one thing that I enjoy about Fuller uh, in his exchanges with Dan Taylor, Dan Taylor was an Arminian Baptist, and Fuller was a Calvinistic Baptist. And yet uh, Dan Taylor had Fuller preach twice in his church. And Fuller said one time from the pulpit that he wanted to show the world that he and Taylor had a cordial friendship, that they loved each other and respected each other, even though they had serious differences. Um, I've gotten to know a brother who would put himself in the, the line of the General Baptist, the historic General Baptist, um, and calls himself a Reformed Arminian Baptist. And he and I have very serious differences, but we also have a lot in common a lot that we agree on, like the regulative principle and, and the need for creeds and confessions and so forth. So I think that, you know, we need to learn from Fuller about how to have good friendships with people we might disagree with. And, you know, he and Abraham Booth, their relationship, shall we say, was tense, to say the least. And I think they both kind of got a little personal at times. But I always find it remarkable that after Booth died, Fuller one time in a sermon referred to Abraham Booth as the first counselor of our denomination, meaning a man that was highly respected and you went to for guidance and advice. Um, I think a lot to learn from that. And, and the last thing that I would say about Andrew Fuller, may we have it said of us, the last words that William Carey spoke of Fuller when Carey found out that Fuller had died, received a letter from England 
It had been six months. Uh, the first thing that Carrie said was, I loved him. And I think we should all strive that we would have that type of a character and a testimony that that would be said of us upon the news of our passing. And so Andrew Fuller is not perfect um, by any means. No man is except the Lord Jesus Christ. But I do think that Baptist, I'll say this, we need John Gill and we need Andrew Fuller. We need Gill, the systematician, and we need Fuller, the pastoral theologian. And I think both of them had strengths and weaknesses. I think their strengths um, are very much needed in Baptist life right now. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- man, I, I think there's a lot to pick apart in that. And maybe we'll do an episode in the future on that. I mean, I think the whole... Uh, friendship and just uh, interaction with people you disagree with in your own uh, tribe or whatever is so pertinent and useful right now. So maybe we'll talk about that later on. Um, But for now, uh, we appreciate uh, you kind of walking us through the areas where you find Andrew Fuller to to not affirm general atonement and not to be a biblicist. So um, I think this is a good model for what we want to do in our episodes all the time, which is just have open dialogue about... uh, topics. So even if we disagree on things, we want to be open and and talk about those things. So we're really thankful that you took the time to engage Dr. Finn. And as as we know, uh, we respect Dr. Finn. You mentioned that. Um, So if he he wants to come back on the show, then we'll, we'll happily oblige him. Uh, and we can we can maybe have all of us talk together uh, and go through it or maybe even get a huge group like Michael Haken on too. Um, but all that said, um, we encourage our listeners to check out Andrew Fuller um, as for the reasons that Jake mentioned, um, all of the good things that he's promoting, all the good things that he would cultivate in Baptist uh, life and just Christian, normal Christian life in general. So, um, You've been listening to the only analytic Baptist confessional podcast that exists. Uh, and we hope you tune in to the upcoming episodes and continue to engage with us, continue to dialogue. If you have disagreements or agreements, let us know. Uh, that's what makes this a lot of fun as we get to learn things and uh, have some good push and, I guess, uh, give and take, not push and take. Um, anyway, thanks for tuning in. 